Now entering the Bitcoin Podcast Network. Welcome to the Block by Design Podcast, where we explore the power and process behind Design for Web3. We'll guide you through the immense challenges faced in Web3 and how embracing the right design methodologies helped overcome these blockers. I'm Reem. And I'm Akil, and we are your co-hosts. Hi, good evening. Welcome to Block by Design. Today, we have the absolute pleasure of having Kate Deem, the founder of the New Design Congress, a nonprofit research organization. But he's also a writer and researcher who focuses on weaponized design, identity, infrastructure, and politics. Cade, thank you so much for joining us this evening. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Absolutely. And we also have Akil with us this evening. Thanks for joining us, guys. Thank you. We're really excited to have you join us on this podcast, especially after DEF CON. But before we dive into your presentation, I want to ask you, what does weaponized design mean? <laughs> That's a good question. So weaponized design is a system or an interface that harms users whilst performing exactly how it's supposed to behave. So for example, um, unlike say a dark user experience pattern is where a user is tricked into doing something, um, whether it's agreeing to advertising that they don't want or being funneled into a decision that they don't necessarily might not be in their best interest. Dark UX uh, is not weaponized design. Weaponized design is where a system behaves completely how a designer uh, expects it to and then somehow harms a user in the process. So when I say, I think it, to be very clear, even though a lot of my work starts at an interface level, weaponized design isn't just an interface-based thing. It's also any kind of designed infrastructure. So for me, design actually means more than just visual design or user experience design. It actually accounts for the cooperation between designers and developers as they come together to design out a system and then build it collaboratively. I think that's a real good description of what design is in the context of the ecosystem. Love to kind of learn a little bit more about your origin story, how you got into design and how that led you to the Web3 ecosystem and eventually to where you are at this point. So I was really lucky in that I sort of fell into design having done an undergraduate in Australia. I received an Apple Worldwide Developer Scholarship for a, like a student scholarship when I was just starting out in my career. And what that meant was that I got sort of shipped off to San Francisco, got to see an iPhone version launch, met a whole range of people and ended up having this career that because I was based so tightly out of Australia and I didn't want to spend a lot of time in San Francisco, I kind of bounced back and forth between the two countries. And what that meant was that even though I was working both as a freelancer and as a as a member of a large team, like in an agency or something, I had like these experiences over the first half of the decade that sort of were very like deeply entrenched in the app gold rush. I worked for teams that built everything from very well-known iPad apps, all the way, like early iPad apps, probably ones that aren't so relevant today, but like the some of the first early iPad apps all the way through to banking app. What I realized was that in my undergraduate, I'd done a lot of programming as well. And so I had this sort of self-taught engineering background as well as a like okay. a professional design background, like a, an actual educated design background. And so we were building these systems and they were really insecure. And this insecurity was like, we'd be told as part of a client brief or by a creative director at a company that I worked at or whatever, to build a system that would be trustworthy. You know, I was dealing with design that was meant for scale, like large societies of people. But, you know, this was a time when HTTPS wasn't as common as it is today. Um, this was a time, you know, even before any kind, like even before the Satoshi Nakamoto Bitcoin white paper, sort of everything was based on a certain kind of trust mechanism, a lot of which still exists today. And what I was realizing was that, that as a designer, I was being asked to do these, these projects, but the work that we were trying to create, these feelings of trust and security weren't actually matching up necessarily with the systems themselves. And that wasn't due to necessarily anyone's fault. That was the culture at the time, right? Like it was... It was common for that to be the case. This is going back a long way now, but if you think about things like Windows XP built from a place of insecurity, it had to be patched 
into the system in order for that to be right. the case. So security hadn't really been a part of it. It's not like blaming a single company or anything like that. It's like the culture at the time. And indeed, infosec communities, that's considered to be the case still today where you know we're slowly getting better but there's still a lot of absurd problems that we have so what happened was i got really disillusioned by these kinds of issues so i kind of dropped out of being a professional designer in the traditional sense as an app designer and i moved into i did a, a prototype of signal over a course of about six to eight months with open whisper systems so signal being the encrypted messaging app that's sort of like quite well known now and that led to involvement in the early cryptocurrency scene, worked on the one of the first examples of plain language, what is Bitcoin websites that was featured by TechCrunch at the time. I was a creative director at CoinJar, which is an Australian sort of competitor to something like Coinbase. Um, so a lot of my work was in that early cryptocurrency scene. And then that was sort of my starting point. And then from there, I became a chief creative officer at SpiderOak which some people might recognize. It's like an encrypted version of Dropbox that Edward Snowden vouched for. He said that it was more secure and sort of hard for the NSA to hack. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, I haven't worked there for a while now, but it's it's still going strong and it's a really cool little product. So I worked there and we did a lot of experiments with designing for trust and designing for distributed identities and sort of identity verification and things like that for individuals. Yeah, it was a, it was a really interesting time. But what I found was that I got really... Uh, I found that the more that I worked in that space, the more I found it to be an incomplete set of solutions as well. So you talked a little bit about designing for security at your previous jobs for a sense of trust. What what does that look like? Yeah. So what we found was that historically, there's a lot of that trust is really shaky and it's also yeah. cultivated from the ground up. So the moment you switch on a device, there is a level of trust in the device and then it's up to the failing of the device or a service or an app inside that to erode that trust. So there, are, it's a really complicated relationship between the user uh, and the device itself. And then also beyond that, there's a relationship between the user and other people within the system and people external to the system at the same time. So what you have is this very shaky relationship of which a lot of, and that looks like, again, that looks like normative patterns, for example, in design. So, so there's like this whole sort of body of work that leans on in the Mac, Macintosh interface guidelines from the late or the early 90s. It would be a great example of the role of design within a trustworthy system is something like the amount of effort that, say, Apple has put into making Face ID kind of seem trustworthy. And there's a lot of visual components to that, as well as like a, a balance between accessibility and reliability that's there as well. But it's a whole set of people working together in concert, right? Like it's a series of aesthetic choices. At the end of the day, everything that the user sees is aesthetic, but it's driven by a complex set of technologies underneath. What's frustrating about it is that there's no single way of um, looking at it, in many cases, you kind of know it when you see it, in a way. Yeah, so when you're talking about inherent trust, I want to get your feedback as far as if that's a good thing. Let's say kids growing up into this ecosystem where they have to rely on technology, they're inherently going to trust the devices they're using, regardless of if they should or not. What role do you see the system design decisions that need to be made as far as what needs to be presented to individuals to know that this is a trustworthy system and there's some sort of process to check that information. Yeah, so that's an interesting point. So I said before that there's like, that you can lean on the existing operating system and the device for a form of trust. That's very contextual. There's there's cases in which the device and the apps work together or even just the device itself and its operating system actively works against the user. And in those cases, the trust is broken quite quite significantly. And that's led to entirely new ways of user thinking towards these kinds of systems. And like we can sort of talk a little bit about that in the meantime, in a little bit, but to, to get to the answer to your question, it's kind of tricky because in one way you expect, like you, you have this, this privilege as a, as a designer where you can look at the relationship between what you're building versus what already exists on the system. And you can lean on that. But at the same time, that then comes with a series of um, unspoken obligations in which you have to behave in a certain way on a system in terms of how information flows, in terms of how it's presented, uh, and in also in terms of what sort of harm that system that you have can bring to a user. Historically, we've seen um, users not be very aware of that. But in the last couple of years in particular, I would say from about 
2013 onwards, maybe a little bit later, we're seeing trust being eroded in a sense on a device level or a systems level. And although it's very easy to dismiss that, I think it's it's something that's happening like at a greater at a greater level now. Um, and I think only that will accelerate, especially so I know that this is like a bit topical, but even like the 2020 US uh, election and the Brexit-based elections that's happening right now in the UK, these kinds of things, no matter what side of the political spectrum you stand on, what's completely relevant in this case in the context of this discussion is the way in which um, increasingly there is a level of distrust in certain systems that are sort of presented through these operating systems. And that's like a, a good start. I'm not even really necessarily talking about things like fake news and things. I'm talking about how how people are targeted individually, um, how people don't have trust in their, their devices anymore. A great example would be the, the fact that it's now a meme that you say something online. Sorry, you say something with your phone on you and then you get advertised about it online. So this this like erosion of trust that's happening between devices and people. How does weaponized design fit in what we just talked about right now? Weaponized design is it's not an in it's something as I said before, it's something that that's highly contextual. It yeah. relates to the user and, and outcomes in particular. But one thing that it shares with a number of other bad outcomes is that it's the result of unintended consequences in design. Um, in this particular case, it's uh, what are the ways in which a system like a blockchain and its user-facing ecosystem, how can that affect, how can, how can that have a negative outcome? I think a really great early example of that is, it, it could be anything like expectation versus reality is a really simple example. So uh, one of the hurdles of early cryptocurrency, and we indeed we saw this while I was working at Coinjar, you know, the Mt. Gox crash, where huge numbers of people who had entrusted their crypto in a particular organization found that it had was irreversibly lost. I mean, that's that can happen at any financial institution. But what's interesting is that a unique property of cryptocurrency in that. It's a, the spend is one way that the fact that the governance is at a machine level means that you don't necessarily have the ability to have a third party intervene and bring that money back. So the big example is something like Mt. Gox falling over on an individual level. It's like sending money to someone who then scams you out of it. You know, around the same time that, that was happening, there was instances where people, I think localbitcoins.com was a big thing back then. And you would have examples, that, like really simple examples where PayPal banned crypto exchange because what was happening was that people were paying for crypto via PayPal to convert fiat to cryptocurrency, in this case, Bitcoin. And then they would lose that money because the, the transaction would be reversed in one way, but not the other. So, I mean, that's an example of weaponized design. In every case, the actual system is working exactly how it's supposed to. But it's not the same outcome that a user is expecting, and it burns the user in that respect. Before we dive in yes. deeper, how did you get into weaponized design? I mean, it's such a niche topic that is centered on design, security, but also maybe ethics. Ethics is a part of it. I mentioned before working in these sorts of, it, it's that classic story, right? Like I'm working on banking apps in the same way as a number of people who were in blockchain spaces were either analysts working in finance or they were like engineers working in finance sectors. I did a lot of design for finance. And what I I was really unhappy with the direction that that was taking and for a number of reasons, you know. And I mean, I did my undergraduate at the tail end of the financial crisis. So, you know, watching that kind of stuff happens, not so great. But besides that, what I was seeing was that as we were building this new tech, obviously a lot of it was less secure than it should be, not for, due to anyone's fault, but just because the systems themselves were inherently insecure. We start, I started looking into what that might be. And the turning point for me was when, if you remember this, this was huge on the internet at the time, the, the iCloud photo hack. It was a case in which Apple combined the camera roll, which was then at, at that time still a new concept of like a timeline-based collection of the photos that you'd taken with your mobile device with the idea that you could then instantaneously back that up to iCloud. And we know why they did that. It's because they had a lot of user research that suggested that people would lose their phones or drop their phones and you'd have grandparents crying in Apple stores about how they lost all their data, for example. And that's a big deal. But the outcome of the iCloud photo hack was that you could then fish the then not as secure as it is today version of iCloud steal someone's user login information and then leak photos from iCloud. And it turned out that the user expectation of privacy of these mobile devices was that, in fact, 
completely in conflict with the reality of the situation. And so even though in this case, there's a, you know, a hack involved or like a, a social, like a social engineering attack involved, it's still the same outcome for the user, which is that they think that this is secure. And then what you're, what's happening is the private photos of female celebrities are being leaked online. The thing that made it really distressing for me was that I had a friend who was caught up in that. So alongside the the sort of celebrities that this happened to, there was also like a number, like I don't even know how many it was, but there was a number of just everyday people who this happened to as well, because the, the hack was a series of techniques that you could put online and try yourself. So a friend of mine got hacked in the same way as the celebrity hack happened. And I was really outraged by that um, because there was no recourse for it. And it was also something where these, you know, this is somebody who thought that their device was secure and I already had this kind of unsettling feeling. So that's where I started to feel, wait, we need to really start to think about what this is, right? And so then I started to think, well, maybe I should get into digital security. I'd already had a little bit of look into that. That led to specializing in digital security and design as a, like a cross-discipline, which led to both the cryptocurrency and the signal stuff and, and working at SpiderOak. But what I realized was that like, even though I was doing all of this work and we were putting out pretty good software, and at this, also at the time, there were lots of people sort of having this same sort of idea, which is that security is the thing that's missing from this equation, that we'll just make everything secure and things will be better. And what I found was that like, even though a lot of great people were putting out great work, it's not the silver bullet that we've been looking for. Security itself is not enough. And so there's this other element yeah. that was at the time, un, it was amorphous and I didn't know what it was, which has then led to about a year and a half of research. Around the same time, I, I decided I would move to Berlin in Germany. Um, I got a job as a digital security coordinator at Tactical Tech before I was the design lead there. Just so happened to be talking about how angry I was at this point that we were having this discussion around security, but there was this, this sort of almost like a soft version of that, like operational security, but not quite, where people were expecting things to behave one way and they were not behaving in that way yeah. and leading to a bad outcome. Exactly. And completely misleading. I mean, I used to live in the United States before moving to Berlin. And there were several times where I got a letter or an email from one of the companies that I have my email addresses uh, connected to yeah. or a credit card account and said, oh, we've been hacked sorry, you know, this is happening. Like, for example, my bank, they said, oh, um, your credit card was compromised. Therefore, we're going to send you another card. There's almost a sense of no accountability um, yeah. or ownership for the mistakes, for the security holes, I guess, in their system. Yeah. And it's just kind of like, you know, it's uh, part of being a member of my organization or for buying, you know, products from Target. You are liable. There's no, they are not liable for any of these security flaws that that occur, these hacks, even though those are like multi-billion dollar companies that could probably afford, you know, to hire the most sophisticated security engineers in yeah. the world. Yeah. So I think Kate mentioned and you're highlighting that trust is getting to a point where it's at an all-time low. Yeah. How do you get to a point that you start discussing design ethics? Reem is talking about no accountability. How do we get to a place where organizations, designers start taking accountability for their work and what that means for the users that are using the services that we put out there? Yeah, so that's a really, both of you have said really interesting things about that. One's around accountability, Reem, and I keep the, the thing that you were saying about um, how you adjust to that. There's a number of ways in which that happens. I don't think there's a silver bullet to be very clear with this. I think that it relies on a very careful collaboration between people who understand that this is actually going on. And I think that takes, that's a top-down thing. I think it needs everything from a C-level all the way through to the individual engineers to at least buy into this concept that trust is collapsing in systems at a time, I mean, this is topical for this particular podcast, right? Like yeah. this is at a time in which we are trying to build systems around trust identity, governance, things like that. So there's there's definitely like this duality here that we need to be very concerned about. My suspicion is that the existing forms of how we design things and conceptualize things as a whole need modification. Um, I'm just looking here at some research that I brought in. I think the, the cases that you brought up, Reem, are like extreme examples of lack of accountability. And if you think about the concept of accountability, you can actually kind of walk it back to its sort of base levels. So for example, in that case, there's levels of accountability. The end one, which we think about a lot is the security of the information once it's stored, right? 
So you've gone in, you've made a purchase, you've interacted or whatever with a system that's owned and governed by a, a giant corporation. And in that interaction, the agreement, whether or not it actually was made, was that your information would be kept private. At least that's how you see it. The amount of information that's stored is based off of a number of decisions that start sometimes in a business case, sometimes in a in a in a design case, like for example, needing uh, user data in order to make better decisions around A/B testing or other forms of design decision making. Sometimes it's related to governance. So it doesn't really matter where it comes from, but in almost every case, it's like an example where. The user's expectation of what's been collected versus what's actually been collected is completely different. And it's often very difficult for people who are the users in that case to, or the customers, let's say, in that case that you're talking about where a company has stolen data or sorry, a company has had stolen data leaked. That is an opaque system that also doesn't seem, it seems like overkill, right? And that's like what the shock of that is the weaponization of that system like thing. But weaponization itself can actually happen in much more mundane ways. So, for example, there's a piece of research by a group called Simply Secure um, that looks into cell phone use in uh, economies in New York. And some of the things that they see here, for example, are the relationships between Android phones and users versus iPhones and users who, for people who have service jobs. And how when you have an Android phone, if you call in sick, you have a different experience than if you call in sick with an iPhone. So if you call in sick with an iPhone, participants told stories of their bosses FaceTiming them because FaceTime is available on every phone. So a boss can then use that to surveil you and figure out whether or not you're actually sick. That's a lived experience, right? That's a form of weaponization versus an Android phone where you have the excuse due to platform fragmentation and also the quality of devices where you can legitimately have plausible deniability about whether or not your phone is capable of, of a video call. So, so the point here, I mean, these seem like they're quite far apart in terms of what, what they represent, but actually they're two parts of the same thing, which is that both of these are designed systems that have very different outcomes. Similarly, in the same report, which is Straight Talk New Yorkers on mobile messaging and implications for privacy, <clears throat> there's a case of how, even though that's the case with iPhones to abuse labor workers or service workers, there's also the case that iPhones are more valuable in these kinds of communities or these, these people experiencing these, these kinds of situations because they're more reliable. And so also you have this reliability in which you can then dictate your life and you have a degree of personal freedom that also then can turn around and bite you in a really serious way with the same device. And so the point that I'm trying to make here is that like that is one side of a very complex designed situation in which there's like weaponized design and security and safety yeah. all tied up together. And then on the other end, you have the, the side that you're talking about, Reem, where you have this, what you think is a regular shopping experience that ends up leaking like a ton of personal data in a hack. And in, in all cases, these are mundane everyday events in which the, the expectation versus the reality is wildly different. I mean, honestly, the way I see it is that every design, whether it's to enhance someone's user experience or to enhance accessibility, it's a double-edged sword, Right. There are two sides to that coin. One side, yes, you could seamlessly, you know, conduct this transaction by just a tap of a button or just, you know, with beacon technology or NFC. On the other hand, it's not necessarily secure. Someone is more likely to actually have access to your bank accounts because NFC is constantly on on your phone and pull all the money from your bank accounts. And that's actually happened to a colleague of mine. Yeah, I'm not uh, surprised. I mean, the attacks that you can pull off with NFC is pretty fun. We can probably have like an entire episode. We could episode. have a whole episode about it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. The design of like frictionless payments itself is like a whole, yeah, 100%. The baseline concepts of crypto economics and blockchain immutability are quite powerful and are going to change the status quo of how we interface with the economic system that's in place already. Uh, you can already see this by the amount of precedence that was put on the Libra talks that happened with Facebook and yeah. the Congress. What role do you see design ethics playing moving forward in this space? How would you define design ethics in the first place? So I want to actually take a step back a little bit and reference a, another paper that I love by Philip Rogaway called The Moral Character of Cryptographic Work, which was published in December 2015. In it, he talks about cryptography that uh, I defined as a, a, a tool that arranges power or rearranges power and that 
because of that, it configures who can do what. And this makes cryptography, quote, an inherently political tool. So in his case, this, this whole paper is fascinating because he dives into a larger discussion around how he feels cryptography has played out over the past 30 years versus how it should have played out. And I think that, yep. that he's not very the, the short version is he's not very happy about it. But I think the point is that there's a lot of focus on the economics of this kind of work, of cryptocurrencies and of blockchain stacks. And design ethics plays a key role in two separate ways with this kind of work. The first is a little more obvious, which is that we focus tremendously on um, existing political structures and responding directly to those in a lot of cases. And that includes through economics, but also through governance. And so there's this, this area of like prior art that we're responding directly to, right? And, and I feel like from a design perspective, both from a systems design, but also from a, like an aesthetics perspective, we've, we, we lean very heavily on the existing work that's already been produced by the previous generation of technologies. I mean, the lazy way of looking at this is like Web 2.0 and it's aesthetics and user flows and system design versus Web 3.0. Blockchain-based practice has a lot of, and this is true of decentralization too, it has a lot of new ideas, but is yet to fully escape from the previous generation of technologies and how those have been built. The second one, which is a little bit more esoteric, is that we still rely heavily on a, a set of biases, broadly speaking, that don't make a lot of sense. So for example, there's this amazing um, researcher based out of Northwestern University in the United States. His name is Will Marlow, and he has a series of papers where he has done a lot of research into poverty in Chicago. And for example, he's discovered that, uh, here's a random statistic out of one of his papers, um, accumulating phones aid and adaption, uh, aid and adaptation in phone access for the urban poor. He talks about how the average number of cell phones for someone in a homeless shelter is 2.5. So in fact, and this is due to a number of reasons that have to do with economics and phone reliability and subsidized plans for cell phone data and things like that, basically leading to and, and relate interpersonal relationships, everything, all of this combining to like a greater than one device ratio for people. So for, I mean, the idea that someone has two phones, if you're um of the middle class or above is kind of absurd, but in the case of the of people in extreme precarious situations, it can be higher than two in many cases. And so, like when we talk about blockchain spaces being based on economics, based on politics, um, I feel like this is done at the expense of these kinds of lived realities, of which aren't just specific to the northwestern part of the United or the Midwest of the United States but actually extend beyond and are quite universal in many ways across different cultures and different countries and their economics. And so what we have is this, this issue in which a lot of great work is being done off the back of assumptions that I think are faulty. And I think one, one way in which you can adequately or accurately describe that is this concept of design ethics. This is probably a good leading point to something that we were talking about before the podcast. There's a, there's a growing chorus of people and a lot of this is absolutely well-intentioned. It has to do around what is design ethics and why should we care about design ethics. One of the things that's often brought up from a product design perspective is the design of the AK-47. And specifically, this is done in discussions that are hyper-focused on product design because for all measures of a designed product, the AK-47 is a huge success. It's accessible, it's easy to use. The context of how you use it has been collapsed in such a way that you can use it no matter what culture you're from, no matter your age, your, your socioeconomic status doesn't really matter because it's cheap, easy to repair. It has low technical barriers for use. Um, it works in all kinds of conditions. It's relatively cheap to manufacture. It has no IP restrictions on it, et cetera, et cetera. And, and so that tool is used as an example where what you go to say is, is this an example of good product design? And the answer that is given in these debates is that no, because it kills people. It's an example of bad product design. And the problem that I have with that statement, although I do not wish to get into a debate at all about gun control or violence or anything like that, this is completely inconsequential to this debate or to this particular point. 
The AK-47 was born out of a particular set of political circumstances. It was designed at the end of the Second World War by a country who commissioned Mikhail Kalashnikov to produce a weapon in the face of massive losses against a superior, technologically superior army and the identification of another army, which is, of course, the United States. And it did, it, it, it did exactly what it was supposed to do. To take that concept and, without going into a history lesson, it's been used in every single major conflict since, on sides that we would consider in the West to be both good guys and bad guys. Again, this is not a history lesson, so I'm not going to go into the specifics of it. But the point is, is that to, to take that and funnel it through a product design lens and call it good or bad design is to erase the political realities of the tool itself and why it has been built in the first place and what it's used for. Obviously, the idea of war is pretty terrible. It's, in fact, almost universally a terrible thing from a perspective of like, I say almost because war is also used by different actors to mobilize large forces of people. We use war language in 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 all sorts of ways outside of actual physical violence. The point is, is that the the actual act of war itself is a much deeper and much more complicated thing than just a product design. And so to filter one of the main equalizers of that, of that power dynamic to a, this is good or bad, is to erase the political realities of a, of a range of different things. I mean, that's essentially bringing in your inherent bias into Absolutely. deciding whether this product is good or bad design, by definition. If you were to look at this objectively, without thinking about the consequences of using this product, it's good design. Well, I mean, yeah, if you, I mean, if you, yeah, I'm trying very hard not to turn this into like a philosophical, but it is kind of, it it is. is. Yes. I mean, mean... well, it depends how you define design as well, right? So Jerry Spool considers design, the rendering of intent. So if you're achieving what you intended for the product to achieve, then it is in essence, good design, but you still have to ethically think of the consequences of what happens when the system goes out of control. So let's say guns are designed to kill people, but cars aren't, and they are one of the leading causes of death uh, in America. So especially with auto driving cars and blockchain technology coming into play, what are the unintended consequences that ethics need to kind of uh, be aware of? So, yeah, I mean, this this ties back to another point that I make that, that, that really bothers me about these kinds of discussions, which is that oftentimes when cars are talked about against the gun analogy, if you like. We talk about how cars have multiple um, appliances versus a gun, which has one appliance, which is to kill someone. Again, this is a, a collapse of the context on which a gun is fired, which is the, ultimately the most important part of that discussion. And the, the re- lived realities of, of that moment are very, very important. Beyond that, I have a really great uh, argument against cars, which is essentially that every time, especially today, that one drives in a vehicle, you are creating a technical debt that is paid off in a generational perspective. When you drive from point A to point B, the designed system in that case, the output of that has a debt that must be paid by the environment. And so my argument would be actually that in many ways, sure, if your measurement is cars and deaths based by based on cars, then like in, in collisions or or similar things like that, or like indirectly through pollution in the moment. Sure, that, I mean guns are way worse, if you like. Absolutely, but, yeah. But in terms of like actually serving the purpose that it was built for, but, but serving the purposes built for, it still has a, like a technical debt. It has a major drawback, which is hidden, which is that it dumps a particular set of chemicals into the air that has to be repaid in the future. Yeah. So, in fact, the design intent is actually even worse in that respect because you have an invisible debt that has to be repaid in the same way as you would consider um, if you have a multi, I mean, let's really simplify this. If you had a multi-chat program that you were designing for and then you designed it in such a way that the minimum viable product was only two people chatting and then in order to change that to multiple people, that's a debt that you have to convert users towards. I mean, this is a really tenuous example, but it kind of fits, the, the analogy kind of fits, which is that like cars to me are infinitely worse because they oh, it actually yeah. fits that kind of, the problem that we have. The problem with the AK-47 is that much in the same way as we design systems today, we see them as individualist in terms of what their application is. But outside of that is an incomplete, when you look at that through the lens of product design and true for cars as well, in the car example, it's driving from point A to B. In the gun example, the AK-47 example, it's shooting 
person A shooting person B, these these uh, befit, they, these are completely scrubbed of relationships of people outside of the systems, of the relationships between infrastructures and power and all sorts of external things that are visible in, 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 in they're visible in disciplines outside of design. And yet somehow we're in the system where we're designing, we're designing with incomplete understandings of what we're building for. So building on that concept of not understanding what we're building for, relating it back to Web3, what are some things we can identify as interventions to actually start influencing decision-making towards a more ethical and fair landscape for marginalized individuals or newcomers into the ecosystem that don't have access to the technology like we do? Are there any frameworks or any thoughts that you have as far as what are the interventions that we can rely upon? So that's a really interesting question. I don't have an answer for that yet. And I also would be very wary of silver bullet solutions. I think one of the core things, and I spoke about this at DevCon, is that right now we see design ethics as a form of solutionism. And to me, design ethics is actually the wrong way of looking at things. I think obviously ethics is something that we need in our work. There's an, a paper that was brought out by a number of researchers from North Carolina State University called Does ACM's Code of Ethics Change Ethical Decision-Making in Software Development? And in this, in, this, in this paper, a team of researchers, they expose both postgraduates and also practitioners to a code of ethics, the ACM's Code of Ethics, and then they compare their decision-making against a control group which is told to behave ethically, like in a sort of abstract way. And what they found was that there is very little difference in the decision-making between those two groups. And so what, what I'm trying to say here is that I don't think ethics alone is enough. And I think, in fact, that a lot of the practices that we use in software development, not just in crypto development, but also just in general um, and in design, is fundamentally incomplete and that we need to start developing new ways of understanding that. And I think the first way to sort of see that is to see technology not as a as a causation of existing problems, although it certainly seems that way. Um, I talk about weaponized design a little bit earlier, and we've talked a lot about it in this in this podcast. But actually, weaponized design is a symptom; it's not an actual root cause of something. The root causes are, are actually things that have existed in society long before the systems that we've actually built. A great example of this would be when we worked when I worked at SpiderOak and we were building an encrypted team messaging client. We often looked at the, the cryptographers on the team. The, their use case was the state coming after somebody. Like that would be we have to build cryptography that would work in this particular use case. And what we did is we did a series of research studies informally where we found that actually there were other examples of of use cases where there were similarities between these use cases and the state coming after someone or the spy example, as I like to call it. So for example, we started with this question, like the, the, the use case of someone coming after a state act, like the state coming after somebody is a fairly niche use case. If we're building a system that we want lots of people to use, what's a more broad use case? And I mean, here's a content warning for um, some of the topic that I'm about to talk about next. We found that inter uh, inter interpersonal partner violence was actually a really good example of that and actually shared a lot of the use cases that you would see between that experience and the experience being targeted by a state. For example, both of them are extrajudicial in which the state or the partner who is coming after the uh, the, the victim, both of them have uh, uh, groups that operate outside the law. Both of them use violence and social networks. In the case of the, the spouse, it's much more intimate in terms of like the, the access to the networks of people that they have. The state is a little bit more clinical. Both of them resolve using violence and safety as a core problem. Both of them use technology in similar ways through surveillance, stalk aware, etc. But in the cases of interpartner violence, what you see is lower levels of tech literacy because the range of cases is so wide. The number of cases of people experiencing interpersonal partner violence is, is much higher than the number of people and more global than the number of people being targeted by the state. And then similarly, um, the interpersonal violence example tends to resolve itself one way or another once the person experiencing the violence decides to leave that relationship. They re the, the situation becomes as dangerous as a state actor being a targeting an individual, but it tends to resolve itself a lot more quickly um, and a lot more violently in the in the immediate sort of couple of weeks. 
And this is an example where people who exist outside of the biases that we have today actually serve to inform a greater example of like a better product. So building a, a messaging app for like uh, women's shelters that can actually like, I mean, we're talking about women's shelters today have these systems where they have to basically have Faraday cages and throw away, you know, the phones of the people who arrive for help because they might have tracking software on them that will expose the location of this shelter to a violent spouse. So they have operational and information security requirements that can exceed military bases in some circumstances and are more stringent. If you solve for those use cases, you sort of solve 90% of your state actor use case as well. And so these are these are ex- immediate cases of like the difference between what we design for versus the reality of of where these technologies end up and how people use them. Okay, so I- I'm glad you actually brought this up, and I know you and I talked about this last week, yeah. which I thought was a really interesting topic. Something you mentioned earlier in terms of designing for Web 2.0, mm-hmm. and just bear with me because this is going to be like a long stream of thought. Let's do it. Designing for Web 2.0. Um, and designing for Web uh, 3.0 and mm-hmm. adopting some of the design principles and ideologies back then. People are still doing that today. My assumption is that it's because it's easier for people to use because they're familiar with it. Mm-hmm. But in the case, for example, victims that are subjected to domestic violence, how can you give them a platform that they are unfamiliar with, that is completely foreign to them, that doesn't give them, that they may or may not trust but Web 2.0 has already kind of created that sense of familiarity for them. Do you think that um, the blockchain, again, this is to go back to the context of blockchain. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason why I'm bringing this up is because a few months ago, I was designing a product, a uh, blockchain-based product for people that are subjected to violence that is blockchain, but that it looked very much like a Web 2.0 product. Yeah, And we did that on purpose because... People are not familiar with blockchain and what its capabilities are in terms of its characteristics. So how do you design a product that is blockchain based or that is based on the web 3.0 mm-hmm. without relying too heavily on the web 2.0 principles, but then also giving them that sense of trust and reliance on this app that it's going to keep them protected and secure? There's a number of things that we can do for that. I'll start by answering that question from a more concrete way and then get a little bit more speculative. If that's mm-hmm. okay. The thing is, is that I think it's a mistake to discount what we've learned. What we've learned is a particular opinionated way of designing software that's rooted in 50 plus years of discipline. What's missing is that over time we've moved from like the initial people at the Palo Alto Research Center at, at Apple before it was, you know, when they were first releasing computers, the early sort of ex-RAND corporation or post-RAND corporation um, Silicon Valley. The, the the designers of that era were people who came from different disciplines. They weren't necessarily designers themselves. Mm-hmm. The disciplines that we have today, and indeed the one that I'm trained on, is a derivative of that, which is also by definition a derivative of Web 2.0 in a sense, right? Because Web 2.0 is, an, is a progression from the first generation of the web. So the, the point is to say, I don't think that it's necessary to reinvent, and I'm not convinced that the outlet, that the result is, or that what's necessary is a complete re, reimagining of of the web in that respect. But rather that it's that we need to start tweaking certain practices within that space. So a great one is like even just simply abandoning user persona design, which is this idea of where you abstract users to groups of users through personas, thereby erasing their relationships between people and and, and also focusing only on people within the system instead of people externally to a system. Um, There are systems that already exist, already exist today that have existed throughout the Web 2.0 framework as well that are really useful. I mean, I imagine that there's probably people listening to this podcast who are very familiar with EVE Online the massive multiplayer online role-playing game that also has a strong a space-faring massive multiplayer game, also has a strong economic component to it. That's entirely participatory design. Like the team that works on that is crazy cool because they do a lot of work around fostering relationships both into internal to the system and externally to it. Question. Yeah. So you just dropped a huge bomb and said participatory design. Yes. What does that mean? Rather than using personas, what you do is you observe users but not through interviews but through observation of them within a system now that has problems around surveillance of course um but the point is is that it's a technique in which you're beginning to think about the relationships between users 
because what you're looking at and measuring is the participation of a user within their design. You're not looking at the person themselves. You're not looking at a very neoliberal version of design, right? The neoliberal version of design is these are my characteristics. I am a man or a woman. I am from this particular configuration, if you like. I'm using like a term around like how you would build it in a systems perspective. And then from there, we abstract that into groups that share that commonality, like a Venn diagram. And then we build for systems where the Venn diagram overlaps. That's like a really crash course, very crude way of des- of describing how you would build something from a user persona perspective. And also importantly, user personas often prioritize task-based development, right? Where you say, as a user, I would like to perform this task so I can have this outcome. And those methods of design prioritize the individual and the tasks that they're trying to do within your system, you know, being the most important part of a designed system, whether you are whether you are an interface designer or someone is an engineer, it doesn't matter. The, 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 the context in which you're designing for is the, exactly the same. Participatory design, might might have some of these elements, but it's measuring the participation of someone within that system. There's, I think, a lot more we can do besides just participatory design. But I mean, like, if you were to say, what's one thing we can do in Web 3.0 that's different? I think that would be one thing. I think that's a great train of thought. But from a practical sense, having worked in the space for the past few years, trying to champion design thinking and bringing design to the forefront, one of the challenges is that even getting to the point that you're relying on user personas that are somewhat developed is quite the feat because there really aren't any users for you to do even basic user research. And then on top of that, you're not in any way quantifying the data because you're not logging any of the information. Whereas like a lot of the information is available on the blockchain, it still doesn't provide the context that you need. But I feel like there's been more experimentation happening in that regard when it comes to DAOs and where certain communities in that area are doing as far as actually modeling themselves after game mechanics where they're testing out different iterations of products based on participation of a certain set of key stakeholders in the ecosystem. But one of the challenges for creating systems for mass user adoption is that we have no user adoption in the first place. So how do you get to that point where you have understanding of what the systems might be able to accomplish without having good understanding of what they're going to do when they actually get onto the system? The I think what's, what's clear is that like you don't necessarily need a user base for this to be the reality. I think what we need is more participation from people outside of the current ecosystem. And I don't necessarily mean users. I think like there's a ton of work that's being done right now in adjacent spaces, such as the social sciences, for example. When I was at DevCon, I was after I gave my keynote, I had a number of discussions with people who were like, had never thought of adding political science to a team. And I think the re- reality is, is that like the original Bitcoin white paper was kind of a political science paper and an economics paper kind of rolled into one, what we risk is losing that from that perspective. I honestly think this, I don't think this is a cop-out. I think we really need political science, social sciences, people within adjacent perspectives that have good ideas of what's coming next. And that, that that's a really interesting topic to me because I think that that's a, that's a space in which we have an opportunity to redefine drastically things that are quite different. Yeah, I think that's one of the things the space does a poor job of is engaging stakeholders external to the immediate community that we've kind of developed. So that's really good to kind of hear your input as far as engaging the policy side of things and how that kind of influences the decisions that are being made. I think right now, a lot of what's happening, um, I think there's a lot of people who work within this field who are developing very strong political ideology and also being able to express that in their practice is really important. But my, I think my claim is that I don't think that's enough. I, I don't think it's enough to, to be able to lean upon existing practices as a designer or as a systems designer, whether you're working as an interface or aesthetics or as a software engineer or as a business, like systems design doesn't really matter by definition. And we have to, I don't think that re- reinventing things from the ground up is particularly useful. But the point that I'm trying to make is that the web 2.0 infrastructure and the thing that I think we feel from the interface, from the pixels down is a, a, a form of dissatisfaction, rightfully so, with power structures, decision-making with governance, with these kinds of issues that, that exist within like the web 2.0 ecosystem. And instead, we don't have, we don't yet have a good answer to that. What I'm trying to say here is that like the thing that keeps me up and the thing that I'm really interested in is 
as as somebody who has worked in systems that everything from uh, the military using these tools all the way through to individuals and like everything, whether or not I agree with these these use cases or not is like not really consequential at this point. But based on everything that I've sort of experienced over the past three or four years, both in the NGO space and in the private space, what I know for a fact is that we aren't quite there and that we don't have all of the answers. If I can use a, an analogy here, I ha- I've had a long engagement with the decentralization community that is like things like secure scuttlebutt, that protocol, groups like that. I've been on the periphery of that for a really long time. And I've been very troubled by their work for a long time, even though I think it's incredible work. My concern is really around things like participation in a network and how when you frame that against an anti-establishment politic, you end up with a very vulnerable population. Whereas something like, let me give you a simple example. Um, The centralization of Twitter obviously has ownership issues and problems around like corruption, things like that. But benefit of that is that compared to a Mastodon instance, the centralization of power also allows it to fight other power, right? So the issue here is like, is the web 3.0 version of Twitter, which is like a decentralized federated system, is replicating the same experience or a similar experience whilst not fully answering the challenges that present itself. I think a great example of decentralization as an analogy are the Hong Kong riots, and I think that's really interesting, and I'd love to write a paper on that because the Hong Kong riots, to me, represent both the will of or what we're trying to do with decentralization and especially decentralized governance, whilst at the same time acknowledging the risks and the infrastructure that has been allowed to be built to suppress people within a system that doesn't exist within a decentralized technology perspective. So whereas something like a DAP protocol exposes your IP address when you start sharing a DAT share, that's not the case. Like that, that's the equivalent of Hong Kongers having to swap subway fare cards so that they're not tracked by the mainland or um, wearing face masks. Like the, the participation in the protest is similar, is an analogy to participation in a network. And when the network becomes precar- politically precarious, that identification structure that's existing for the purposes of all sorts of conveniences gets weaponized against people. For a long time, I've been really concerned about that. In fact, I I first talked about it publicly when the um, Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency in the United States started deporting or separating families in the United States. Someone scraped everyone who worked there who had a LinkedIn profile and dumped it on GitHub. And then GitHub's lawyers said, no, we don't want this. And so someone's uploaded a DAT share of it. And to me, and then that was kind of softly promoted by the DAT protocol people. And that to me represents like a really big risk because if you then involve yourself in that, then your IP address is associated with that. And similarly, like on a more mundane level, you have, that's that's true when you, if someone's downloading a, um, a copyrighted piece of material in Germany, for example, you can get a letter because they'll just... And a massive fine. Well, yeah, and a massive fine. Yeah. You can get, I mean, this is true. I've been documenting cases like this for about five years of how you can use legislation as a, as a weapon against people who have no idea of what's going on in that oh, respect. Yeah. So, so the point that I'm trying to make here is that like there is a really clean analogies to what's happening in Hong Kong. And in fact, what I would say is that like Hong Kong conceptually is a like logical extreme outcome of what's, of what's been happening and how we've been building infrastructure just more generally. And so I think that's really fascinating. And I think it's like a good like starting point for that kind of discussion. I see a lot of parallels between what you were talking about as far as identity and censorship and how that impacts the blockchain space and how we have to use mixers and whatnot to protect your identity and what that means moving forward. What kind of systems need to be developed or hacks need to be developed into what exists today so it's more usable for people moving forward. You you wouldn't believe um, when, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say this, but I'll just say it anyway. When I was working at CoinJar, we had one of the first bank cards back in like 2014 for withdrawing crypto from an ATM. And that was a big thrill, like, you know, taking a blank prototype bank card that was white on one side and had a magnetic strip on on the other. And then you put it in a machine and then you call your leads engineer and you say, hey, 
we're ready to go, like check it on your end and then money comes out. It's like a really cool, it's like, surreal it's like Terminator <laughs> yeah. 2 when Edward Furlong like sticks a thing in his computer and all this money comes oh, out yeah, at the right. beginning of Terminator 2 felt like Edward Furlong. And so jokes aside, like what we found in that situation was that we were monitoring Reddit pretty hard when we launched that, that was called CoinJar Swipe. What we found was people on the darknet markets at the time, if you remember around the time of Silk Road, it was a little bit less underground than it is today. And there were people posting quite openly about buying stuff through the dark web um, using Bitcoin and then cashing out through their CoinJar swipe card because they could like convert darknet market money into like fiat in a matter of minutes, which is a miracle actually when you think about it. But at the same time, like you needed full KYC in order for that to happen. And I remember being really like shocked at that, that people couldn't see that, that there was like this mistaken idea that Bitcoin was anonymous just by the virtue of having it. Like it's such a, and I think like yep. that's, that's a classic example of what I'm sort of talking about here, which is like the reality of what's going on versus the implications of that and how, and of course, like I don't care where anyone sits on that drug divide. Like I don't care whether you think drugs should be legalized or not. That's not the point. The point is, is like, do you have all of the facts when you're making a decision in the moment as a person? And what I could see was like on mass people not having all of the facts, despite all of them being from my perspective, very clear. I feel like that's an, a starting point again for the same, like it starts with that kind of interaction back in 2014 and even earlier. And it ends with things like people tearing um, facial recognition towers out of the ground in, in Hong Kong. Like it's the same story. So blockchain and Bitcoin were designed in response to the financial crisis that yeah. happened in 2008. And now we're starting to see how this technology is basically being used against mm -hmm. people that are using this for whatever inherent characteristics it was initially designed for. Yeah. One thing that you brought up at your DEF CON um, talk that was really interesting and kind of profound was how the UN was using blockchain for refugees yeah. in the refugee camp in Jordan. Yeah. And that was like one of the first like shining examples. And we talked a little bit about this last week, how I initially wanted to design like a workshop around how do we use blockchain to for social good. But then I started doing some research and reading into more how blockchain is currently used in the UN with the mm -hmm. refugees. And then I started to realize that this is kind of an encroachment into people's yeah. privacy and their data. And while some people might not necessarily find data like such a valuable asset, it could be used against them. Yeah. Organizations today monetize off of your data. Yeah. So in the context of blockchain, like what are your primary concerns and how it could be weaponized? On a more basic level, you can I think if you start from a perspective of like where we're at right now, which is like a weird kind of form of authoritarianism or like right wing I don't want to get this too political, but like what we're seeing yeah. is like authoritarianism that manifests in different ways right there's a top-down form of governance that is true no matter where you sit on the political spectrum i think one thing that's really interesting about this moment politically is that when you examine different political groups a lot of people have similar kinds of concerns that, that draw different conclusions from that which is not to say that i'm saying that everybody's right but what i'm saying is that the, the trigger points are very similar it is really obvious that blockchain technologies have a lot of benefit for different kinds of networks and different kinds of forms of governance. But I worry that this is, especially when it's combined with sort of a la carte collection of personal information, it creates a power structure that's quite difficult to break hold of. This starts with how people envision what a blockchain can be used for and then how that's then executed on, on top of that. In the same way as we were talking earlier about how Target is collecting more data on you than you think, and that leads to like a, wep a weaponized design outcome where you didn't realize that you had all the sensitive information exposed. I think this is true, ex exceptionally true for like a blockchain example. There's the same sorts of decisions around like what do we collect? How do we measure success? How do we measure failure? What's the parameters for what we need to measure those things? From a design perspective, all of that is the same as what's come before. But now you have that sort of immutability of that system, which then creates a power structure. So part of the reason why I'm so concerned about that, part of the reason why the talk is so important that I gave at DevCon is because I think that the stakes are different. I mean, ultimately, we like to talk about Facebook as a multinational that can be, that, that's like above and beyond a rule of law. Ultimately, there are ways in which 
different countries could come together and take down something like Facebook quite easily. Um, it would require an international cooperation, but let's be clear, it's not as powerful as it likes to think that it is. That, I think, is why the Libra project was so scary as well, because it solidifies something that is missing from the Facebook war chest, if you like, which is currency. But I think there's other ways in which it's true too, like govern, like laws and sovereignty, blah, blah, blah. So the point that I'm trying to make is that like when we're starting out and we're building these new, new systems, a lot of stuff that people are already working on that's existed already, the fact that we are using these techniques to build these new systems is inadvertently funneling towards it, like a further concentration of that kind of power, I think. And I think yeah. that's part of why I'm so like, why I stress this idea of design ethics not necessarily being the answer, because I don't think it's enough to just say, am I designing inclusively? Because I think just you can be an inclusive designer and still have a terrible outcome politically. We spent the last hour. <laughs> hour and a half now. Hour and a half. Yeah. Talking about the implications of evil design yeah. or weaponized design. What is kind of like the silver lining here? Especially when it comes to like the context of Web3. I mean, yeah. it was born out of the the idea of democratized people's assets. What is the silver lining here when it comes to Web3.0? The silver lining is, is that there's a lot of people working invisibly to this space around answers towards this. Uh, right now, a lot of this is in relation to Facebook and related systems. But I think that that critique, as I said, because we are leaning so heavily on prior art, I think it relates really nicely to like the critiques travel into Web3. I bring up the Hong Kong example. The more that we think of Hong Kong protests as a warning sign of practice and the outcomes of practice, the more that we have these kinds of discussions, the more that it's less likely that that will actually be an outcome. There's a tension between sort of business goals of which design obviously um, facilitates. I mean, if design wasn't facilitating a business objective, then it wouldn't exist. Like, I mean, that's true of almost anything related to this whole field. Right. But it does, it does start with that uh, sort of a collective rethinking of what's the role and what the relationship is between design and practice. And it does it does require a lot of thinking about, is it enough to just be an inclusive designer or someone who who's asking questions about how are we designing for women or how are we designing for different socioeconomic perspectives? Because even though those are noble goals, and I'm not suggesting otherwise, what I'm saying is that it's still trapped within a individualist form of thinking. And what that that's nefarious for is, is it disconnects people from each other. And blockchain is ultimately a, a relational database in, in a certain sense. And so because of that, we can't apply the same client service relationship that you have with a web 2.0 system such as Facebook. And so the sooner that we start to develop alternate methods towards those kinds of relationships, especially when you start with the interface, what you get for free is the ability to explain it to people, not just other engineers necessarily, but also people further up in the decision-making process. So the sooner that we can start to think of alternate ways of seeing these systems, the sooner that we can start to identify threats from an end-user perspective, and then the sooner we can sort of push that back up the chain. Thanks a lot for coming through to our podcast, Cade. Uh, we were really excited to have you on. So one of the key things that I want to take away from this is being in this space is quite challenging to manage and uh, balance the learning that you need to do and to actually do the production work that's needed as well. So what are some key resources? You did a really good job of bringing in context with the research that you've done. So if we wanted to catch up to the breadth of knowledge that you have, what are some good resources we can start to rely on? Some good readings, uh, some good blogs or some other resources that people can kind of start tapping into? Yeah. So I, I mentioned a few papers. Those are really good starting points. There's another one that I can think of that's the Journal of Design Studies Forum, Design and Culture. They did a special issue called um, Design and Neoliberalism, which is a good overview of the role of neoliberalism in design, which helps to frame a lot of these problems that I've talked about today. There's another book that you can that, that's a, that has a number. Of, it's not perfect in a lot of ways because there's some stuff I obviously disagree with, but it's called Universal UX Design Building Multicultural User Experience by Alberto Vieira. That's a really good resource as well. I think ultimately a lot of the things I've dropped today are good starting points. As I said, I don't trust silver bullets. I think observing things is really important. I, I also think that looking into 
again, like Will Mahler's work, the work of Simply Secure, the work of, I mean, even what we've done at Tactical Tech in terms of the glass room, for example. So at the we, we just finished an exhibition in San Francisco around personal data and you. We've done four of those so far. That's a really good resource for the outcomes of technology. Uh, and then another thing I'll plug that's not mine as well is the blog Unintended Consequences by Paul Orlando, I think his name is. That's a, a good starting point as well. From my perspective, I did the talk at DevCon called Will Design Ethics Save Software? I think that's a good uh, like summary of my, my position as well. And indeed, like if you're interested in this stuff, you can follow me on Twitter or I'm going to start a newsletter pretty soon as well. So just go on my website and find the, the sign up for the newsletter there. Yeah. What's your website? My, my, my website is shiba.computer, Shiba, S-H-I-B-A, B for beta, Bob, Bob whatever. <laughs> Shiba.computer. Okay. Yeah. So Shiba.computer. Shiba.computer. Could you also reiterate your Twitter handle? It's a design jerk. Helveticade. It's my name and Helvetica. <laughs> Helveticade. Get it? Helveticade. Awesome. Uh, so we'll be sure to include all of the links and resources on the show notes. Hopefully you guys got as much of a joy as we did talking with Kate today. And we'll be sure to bring him back to continue the conversation for another two hours. <laughs> and look forward to look forward to having that opportunity. It's funny because it's not gonna be two hours. That's a funny joke. That we're gonna cut this to thirty minutes. So you should do a DVD extra where we do like the full like the side conversation. Like a Patreon <laughs> version of it where you get like oh, the extra... Patreon. Yeah. That was actually quite a good episode, I have to admit. Oh thank you. I, I appreciate it. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. I, I appreciate it. I think that, like, if anything, um, this this area is the place where we can antagonize for change in a good way, for sure. And I appreciate both of you for having me. Thank you very much. Thank and you. for the listeners as well. Like, I hope this generates interest. I'm sure it will. <laughs> I hope so. I mean, I just talked a lot of shit for, like, an hour and a half. That's what podcasting is about, isn't it? I just walked in and said everything's terrible. And then, like... Well, we asked for the silver lining, so... Well, they would, yeah. And you did share with us, so... Yeah, yeah. Thank you all for listening and thank you, Kate, for joining us. Thank you very much. Appreciate it.